0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan show. I'm so delighted you could join us on this Christmas Eve. My intention in doing this show is to bring information, insight, and comfort to people all around the world by helping to answer life's unanswerable questions. And boy, do I have a treat for you guys on this Christmas Eve. We've got Clark Stran and Perdita Finn, who are so extraordinary, and they are the authors of this book, The Way of the Rose, which is one of my all-time favorite books in my whole 61 years. So that's saying a lot. I've read a lot of books. And uh, so welcome,
2: you guys. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Christmas, Thank you for having us on. It's wonderful to be here. Oh, my
0: gosh. So excited to have you. So, all right. Let's talk about your official bios so everybody knows who you are. Let me put my glasses on so I can see what the heck I'm doing here. Clark Strand is an author and lecturer on spirituality and religion. A former Zen Buddhist monk, Clark has been studying the world's religions for more than 30 years and has written numerous books and papers on the subject. Perdita Finn, a former high school teacher with a master's in the teaching of writing, I love that, from Columbia University, Perdita is also the author of several books. Clark and Perdita are the co-founders of a rosary fellowship dedicated to the rights of the earth and the rights of women. You can find them in their work by going to thewayoftherose.org. And we'll have all this posted in the show notes and all that. How I even found out about you guys is my dear friend, Dr. Christian Northrop, talked about your book. She yeah. just Real angel, she was yeah. so
2: sweet. To she is
0: just a love. I talked to her on my walk this morning, the whole walk. You know, we solve world <laughs> problems together. So I, I googled it, and then I saw that Carolyn Mace, who's another woman that I follow, she says uh, her her endorsement of you, Brooke, was what happens when when a former Buddhist monk and his feminist wife witness an apparition of the Virgin Mary. And I'm thinking, ooh. <laughs> That sounds interesting. And, you know, cradle Catholic here, 12 years of Catholic school. So I'm thinking, ah, woo, woo, Virgin Mary, all this. I got to I got (laughs) to find out what's going on. And I thought, who better to talk with me on Christmas Eve about the Virgin Mary than you guys, because you have such amazing experiences with her and and have really studied her. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. On this.
2: Thank you for having this night. <laughs> but one of the things we've we've discovered as we've traveled the country talking about our book with people is so many people have incredible experiences with her. And people raised Catholic, people raised Protestant, people were not raised in any religion at all. And you know, really our book is just an invitation to know that everyone's got a mother and she's there <laughs> for everyone. Right. Right. So, did either of the two of you grow up in a religious or a
0: spiritual family? Tell us about about your upbringing.
3: Well, I, I grew up in the Bible Belt of the South. You're in, you're in Birmingham, right?
0: That's right. Yes. <laughs> okay.
3: Well, I lived a uh, you know a stone's throw from you in Anston, Alabama, in the 1960s, and you know in Atlanta, Georgia, in the 70s. I was born in Mexico, Missouri. You know, I I, I lived all over, but. Uh, every place I lived had very strong, (laughs) very conservative uh, Protestant Christian churches, and I was brought up in those, and I never had any contact at all, I think, with the Virgin Mary. Uh, You know, she was, you know, if you had given me a multiple... Uh, choice exam, you know, and one of the answers had been Galilean housewife, <laughs> I would probably have chosen it, Mother of Jesus. I might have gotten that right, but that was about all I knew. <laughs> oh, how funny! And
2: Perdita, how about you? Well, I was raised by bohemian atheists. Um, you know, my mother, I, you know, I, my, my husband used to say, I think this is your mother's first life as a human being. <laughs> 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 she'd been, no but she'd been tigers before she was fantastic yeah, yeah, but she yeah. just she had no interest in religion at all and she'd been raised without any and just clearly disinterested and my father had been raised in an immigrant irish catholic family and you know as often happens first kid to go to college and he rejected his parents superstitious faith and was determined to remake himself as a modern intellectual uh and he would actually we my grandmother took a, had a lot of grandchildren, but I never went to church. I wasn't inside of a church. I didn't know any prayers. And you know, as happens, you grew up with tremendous yearning. You have nothing but curiosity and yearning when you're denied something like that. And so I found myself looking a lot, and I, I actually did convert to Catholicism in college briefly, very briefly. Uh, And I was very uh, much moved by the social justice movement of the Catholic Church and Dorothy Mm. Day and the priests and nuns I met were really phenomenally inspiring Mm. people. I Mm. became an inner city school teacher and and very much inspired by their work in the world. Mm. But they did not teach me the rosary. They did not. You know, the rosary has post-Vatican II really not been been a strong presence and i think what i was really craving was some kind of mystical experience and i ended up actually going getting involved with zen buddhism i did not meet clark there (laughs) (laughs) i met him after he left the monkhood i did not the monkhood is that a
3: word i suppose it is yeah it's definitely a thing
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> My
0: goodness. But monks aren't, are monks married? Or are they, are they well, single and celibate like priests? Well,
3: tr- traditionally, uh, monks, you know, around the world are are celibate, but uh, Japanese Zen Buddhist monks and their American counterparts are not celibate. They're often married. In fact, in Japan, it's kind of a, a big problem because, you know, the temples or family operations, they're basically funeral businesses, and so there's not much serious uh, Zen Buddhism left in Japan these days. It's just really a big funeral industry.
0: So what does funeral... That say?
3: They actually call it funeral Buddhism. That's <laughs> that's the modern term for it.
0: What, is, what does that say about you, Clark, that you chose a branch that was not celibate? What's that tell us? That
3: tells us that I had no <laughs> lasting vocation. <laughs> <laughs> as a Zen Buddhist monk,
2: What it tells you if is you always my, wanted a family. <laughs> if
3: I would known myself a little better, I would probably have figured that out sooner than I did. <laughs> oh, that's
0: hilarious. Well, and Perdita, I read in The Way of the Roses story about you having a Virgin Mary, a little Virgin Mary from a nativity scene as a child growing up in a kind of a you know a non-religious
2: home tell us about that. in our non-religious home no church at christmas no nothing my father who's a doctor the atheist would come home in the middle of the night around two o'clock in the morning and he would find me at age two or three kneeling in the dark beside an old broken statue of the virgin mary from the nativity scene and it so freaked him out he didn't know how this could be, why could this be, why was I in devotion to the Virgin Mary, that he would distract me, turn on the lights, bring me downstairs, pour me a bowl of frosted flakes at midnight and say, we're going to have our special treat. You and I are having cereal. And I remember the frosted flakes at midnight and I did not know that I did this. And he did not tell me that I did this until I was just before he died. So probably till I was about when I was 50 years old, he finally said you know there was the strangest thing when you were a little girl he didn't want me to be devoted to her yeah he was terrified of religion he he you know he mocked my grandmother for praying the rosary for his sister when she had pneumonia now you got to remember six kids the depression no money no antibiotics and you have a child whose fever is spiking
3: yeah well, beth got the last laugh there she's still alive <laughs>
2: But, you know, of course, you know, women have always known the power of prayer when the medicine doesn't work, when there's no money left in the bank account. You know, this is this is what's what's held families together through the centuries. Yeah. Well,
0: it's interesting to me to to hear the perspective of somebody who isn't raised Catholic and how Catholics have this devotion to the Virgin Mary in particular, when my son, Jonathan was in kindergarten, he he went through Catholic schools, Catholic grade schools, and it was uh, May crowning, you know, May, the kids, he's in this Catholic school with these nuns and the habits and the veils and the whole nine yards, amazing educators, Dominicans. I mean, just the best educators. He got a fantastic education from them but they sing songs to the statue and they bring it flowers and they put a crown of flowers on its head. So my husband was not raised in a religion, was not Catholic. And he says to me afterwards, he goes, and people, you wonder why people think this is a cult. He said, you guys are singing to this statue and bringing it flowers and put flowers on its head and stuff. He goes, this is, this is pretty weird. And it was the first time that I looked at it from the eyes of a non-Catholic because I'd been raised with that. I didn't know any differently. And I thought that was so right on target. And it opened my eyes to other perspectives of how how
3: devotions can be seen. You know, that that tradition right there goes back that predates uh, Christianity, it goes back to Babylonian religion and maybe even earlier. That's one of the earliest devotions to the great mother goddess, was to weave a crown of flowers, uh, usually roses in the spring, and present them to a statue, right? Uh, A a representation of the great mother. And, you know, today roses are Mary's flower, right? The rosary takes its name from, from the rose. But before uh, before roses were sacred to Mary, they were sacred to Venus. And before uh, Venus to Isis, before Isis to Inanna, and it goes back and back. So that's a very, very old gesture. And the rosary itself, even symbolically, comes from that, that circle of flowers. The bees are stand-ins for flowers. They're an offering, a floral offering, but you're speaking the prayers.
0: Well, I wish I would have known that Twenty-five years ago, because
3: that would have been a great
0: <laughs>
2: book. Well, it's now. amazing. One of the things we talk about our book is how many things are going on that have been going on for much, much longer than Christianity. In fact, that the rosary and a lot of the devotion to the Virgin Mary really takes us back to indigenous European spirituality, yeah. mm-hmm. and and that it shows us ways of being. I mean, that's one of the things that we're fascinated by. It was a way that people hid their devotion to the mother goddess in plain sight.
3: Well, they didn't have to hide it that much. I'm going to hold up a rosary here, Julie. You can look at it. it makes a circle with a cross hanging down. Mm-hmm. Now, most people, when they look at that, you ask them, well, what does that symbol remind you of anything? Most people, it doesn't take people very long to realize, oh, yeah, that's the, the uh, uh, astrological sign for Venus and also the modern uh, gender sign for female, right? Right. But if you, all you have to do is, is uh, you know, uh, loosen the circle a little bit so that it forms an oval. And now it's the Ankh, right? Which was yes. sacred to Isis, the ancient Egypt, Egyptian hieroglyph for life, which is so closely associated with the goddess Isis. And so even before you say any of the prayers, even just with the basic symbol itself hidden in plain view, is a reference to the great mother goddess going back thousands of years before Christianity.
0: Interesting. All right, back to your monkhood. (laughs) You're not going to let them off the hook, Julie. (laughs) That's a new vocabulary. I'm
3: never going to live this down. That's
0: a new vocabulary word for me, the monkhood, your monkhood. Tell us about your monkhood, and how does a southern boy from Anniston, Alabama, sweet home baby, how do you get to become a monk? Where do you hear about them? How did you get involved with them? Did they, did they, was it kind of like the, you know, the, um, the welcome wagon monks just showed up at your door and invited you to join? I was what not,
3: recu- I was not recruited by a traveling, uh, uh, cult of, uh, of Zen Buddhist monks. The no. New
2: York Times is responsible to <laughs> the leave. New York
3: Times. Is responsible. Right? I was. I was uh, very interested in haiku poetry, which I became interested in as a teenager. It's been a lifelong uh, a passion for me, writing haiku poetry, the you know, five, seven, five syllable poem. And I teach it professionally now even, and have for years. But uh, it, that led me to Zen Buddhism. And I got very interested in it. So interested, in fact, that when I went through a kind of a existential crisis in college, I dropped out. And I went to upstate New York because I had read a cover story in the New York Times magazine about a Zen monastery up there that had opened just the year before. So I dropped out of college, got on a bus, went up there, you know, arrived sight unseen, you know.
2: And this is in the days before Buddhism is popular. No, it was not
3: popular. It was not popular. And no one was doing this. You know, no one in my college was doing it. Nobody I, I knew was interested in Zen at that point. This was in the mid 70s. And uh, I just took off and, you know, I ended up dropping out of college and uh, uh, spending a year, you know, learning to meditate. I went back to college, graduated, but eventually the pull was so strong that I was so driven to do it, that I eventually went back and, you know, became a monk and then ultimately became a a Zen teacher in in New York City with my own temple. But that was the point at which, you know, everything, you know, the success after, after training for all these years, you know, about 14 years of training. You know, success was within my grasp. I was going to end up as a Zen master, I was going to be a Zen teacher, I was already teaching, I was already had students. And I started waking up every morning so depressed I couldn't get out of bed. Mm-hmm. And I, I tried to talk to my Zen friends about it. And they said, no, no, you're doing great. You're doing great. You are so enlightened. I mean, it just like it just shines off of you.
2: I know, right? right here. I always say, if you want to, if you want to see enlightenment, show me an American Zen master married to his first wife. <laughs> none of them
3: are. <laughs> well, there might be one. <laughs> no, this is going to go out. Of there, yeah, there are some. None of them. There are probably some. None of them. So, <laughs> so anyway, so I went to a therapist, a little um, tiny little little man, a Jewish man, who's a psychoanalyst. I lay on the couch that first day, and I talked and explained everything. And at the end of it, he said, yeah, you're in a lot of trouble. <laughs> he says, uh, you're in a lot of trouble, but we're going to get this all sorted out. And I think you're probably not going to be a monk at the end of it. That You know, I should warn you that. And I said, that's fine. And sure enough, you know, a year later, I, I left. So.
0: So what, what was your family's reaction when you said, oh, I'm going to drop out of college and go learn to meditate for a year? I mean, did your mother cry for weeks or what happened? No,
3: no. Actually, my mother was pretty phlegmatic about it. She was herself a psychoanalyst by that time. And she, uh, it was her job to uh, vet the uh, applicants for the Episcopal priesthood in the, in the state of New Jersey. So she had heard everything and seen everything pretty much. But my father, the private school headmaster, drove into Manhattan and took me out to lunch and tried to convince me to become an Episcopal priest instead because he said that Episcopal priests get a house, a car, and a free golf membership. (laughs) And I remember looking at him, it was like, my my father's a very imposing guy, you know, very, very much in command, you know. And uh, I remember looking at him and thinking for the very first time, wow, my dad is really mortal. And this is really stupid. And he really has, I kind of feel almost sorry for him. And then I called my mom. And I said, you won't believe what dad just said. He said, I should be an Episcopal priest. I don't even, I don't even believe in God, right? At that point. And uh, she said, oh, son, you don't have to believe in God to be an Episcopal priest. Oh.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> so that was the point which I said, all right, I've definitely set on being a Zen Buddhist monk. <laughs> you couldn't have talked, to that, talked me out of it right after that.
0: <laughs> so then what was the catalyst for you to leave monkhood?
3: Well, a couple of things. One was, you know, I began to see the uh, semi underbelly, not just of, of Zen uh, and of Buddhism in this country, and it had a dark side, definitely, Uh, But I was beginning to see that uh, patriarchal religions in general, and Zen was very intensely patriarchal religion, were were fundamentally and deeply flawed, and that certain kinds of problems always devolved from that kind of power structure. I saw it myself up uh, up close, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. And more than that, even, I, I, I began to feel a sort of a sense of mission to sort of examine it and to write about it. I went to, I became the first senior editor of Tricycle the Buddhist Review, which was a magazine which was founded uh, in the nineties in order to uh, uh, publish stories about uh, uh, Buddhist masters and teachers uh, who were up to no good and somebody needed to report on their activities. And so this independent magazine was founded originally uh, to report on abuses of power. Interesting. All right. So
0: you left there and then what'd you do?
3: I began looking for Perdita.
0: <laughs> well, that's my next question. How did you get together? You didn't know you were looking for her though, right?
3: Well, I had we, a pretty I, good idea. I didn't know her name, <laughs> but I had a pretty good idea. All right.
0: So,
2: so what what was we, for. Perdita, what were you doing at that point? You got out of school and then and I, I was, a, I was, I had, um, I had founded an alternative public high school in New York city called the Urban Peace Academy. And was teaching up at Columbia, teaching writing and, and the teaching of writing. And one day I got a message from my best friend on my machine. And she said, I've met the man you're going to marry. And she told me his name and she said, he, he teaches at that Zen monastery you go to. I said, really? This was a different Zen monastery. And so I get out the catalog and there is no photo of him, but there is a biography. And I read the biography and he writes poetry and, you know, he teaches Zen. I think, okay, you know, have me over for dinner. I'll meet this guy. Did you envision and, like a little Japanese guy? No, no. I saw, yeah. I saw he was an American. I saw he was an American. My friend I said he was good looking, and I said, you know, you know how but, tall is he? Which is the first question you ask your friend. And
3: I wasn't. <laughs> and I wasn't. <laughs> I wasn't a monk anymore. It he wasn't was, a monk. I wasn't teaching Zen. I was no. teaching haiku. Boy.
2: But the important questions, yeah. you know, I ask how tall is he? Is he good looking? You know, my friend said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I trust her. She's my best friend.
0: She um, said, yeah, he's a babe. Where do you meet him?
3: Right?
2: No, she didn't. say <laughs> Anyway,
3: wait till you hear my story. I'll tell you what you did. Okay.
2: And I got up to in the next morning to go to this cafe where I wrote frequently. And in New York, it's called a Hungarian pastry shop. And it's like you're stepping back in time. It's like you're in a little cafe in Vienna and they're like, you know. Peasants plotting revolution and back. And
3: it's a real old school, old world style cafe, and it has the
2: worst coffee oh, in the whole world. And the best
3: pastries. Except, best pastries, and the the, but the,
2: the coffee is you can refill your coffee as much as you want all day, all day long. Yeah. I mean, you might end up in the hospital if one did so, but you can <laughs> drink
3: if so it. So it if you're a poor student, so it, 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 it was. It attracted all the writers in New York City, so it's filled with writers.
2: But the day I went there. There was nobody there. I sat down to work on a piece of writing I was working on. And um, I heard the door open and shut. And there was a man standing in front of me, very handsome, the man. But I had a lot of work to do. And he said, can I sit here? And I had this moment, Julie, when I looked around, every table was empty in this cafe. Oh, There's
3: like 20, tables. <laughs> every 20 table. tables.
2: And I'm about yeah. to say, come on. And he's holding his mail and I see his name on the mail and it's Clark Strand. And this is the man my friend has told me about. So I say, sure, sit down. I don't tell him I know who he is. He says, you think it's gonna rain today? Worst pickup line ever. (laughs) Oh, Clark, please. Hopeless. Hopeless. I was
3: very confident. You know, you know, that expression, you know, if only I had the confidence of a mediocre white man. People will say it's kind of a meme. It's a joke. Right. Well, I just figured, you know, this was good enough.
2: and It worked. We talked for hours. We we fell into a conversation. I mean, we've all had these experiences with people where it was as if we'd been talking our whole lives and we were picking up a conversation we've been having for lifetimes and you know the whole cafe filled with people we didn't notice it hours passed and you know that was the beginning and you know a year later we were married and i was pregnant with our daughter
3: yeah that's her side of it but what what had happened the day before was I had been writing outside at the pastry shop, overlooking the Cathedral of Saint John the Divine, right across the street, across Amsterdam Avenue. I was out there, and a young woman, uh, a mother, came in with her child. And you know, there there weren't that many uh, free tables, and so she sat it on the other side of my table. And uh, you know, I took up, uh, struck up a conversation with her, and uh, she had her little baby Joshua, uh, who became Bernie Sanders. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. he, he grew up to become a big political guy. But anyway, so uh uh Joshua was a little baby back then and I uh you know I picked him up and started playing with him and everything and she said I have to go in and get uh, coffee. coffee. We watch him for a minute. So I did and I was playing with him. You know, I had three younger siblings who I, you know, helped to raise and changed a lot of diapers in my time, and I love children. So uh I think she came back and was just standing there watching me for a while, you know, not you know, I, I was unaware of this. And eventually, she came over. She sat down. And she said, "Wow, you're really good with children. Do you like children?" I said, "Yeah, I love children." She said, "Do you have any children?" And I said, "No, I would like to, but I haven't met the right woman yet. I'm hoping to." And she says, "Oh, you have to meet my friend Perdita because she's dying to have a baby." So much for best friends. So I thought. Okay, I've been true, a monk, I stopped being a monk, you know, I started dating a bit, more than a bit probably, and before I met Perdita, and I wasn't quite sure, although I wanted to settle down, have a family and, and start having babies, I wasn't sure I wanted to get together with a woman who was dying to have a baby like now, right? But she told me her name was Perdita, and I came into the pastry shop that had just opened often I was the first person there. I came in, there was a woman sitting there already and she, it was a woman that I had seen a number of times at the pastry shop. And every time I saw her, I thought, now that's the kind of woman I'm looking for, but I'm pretty sure she's married. And that morning I looked at her and I thought, you know what? I don't think she is married. And so I asked to sit down with her and the moment she said her name was Perdita, I thought, Oh, if this is the woman who's dying to have a baby, we might be in business. (laughs) (laughs) So I went home and I wrote in my diary, I met the woman I'm going to marry.
2: We read it every year on our anniversary. (laughs) sweet is that? I
0: love that. My dad was in the seminary at the Vatican after Mm -hmm. World War II. He went on the GI Bill, which I think is a riot that the U.S. government paid for him to go become a priest and he graduated from the Gregorian University and had private audiences in the private library with Pope Pius the Twelfth and la 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 la. And so I mean all these saints. All these popes, these famous people graduated from the Gregorian. So anyways, he uh, left six weeks, six months before he was to be ordained. And his 50th reunion, he stayed in touch with his classmates who became archbishops and cardinals and all these guys. They they told me in person they were the cream of the crop. I mean, these guys were like, <laughs> really, really had a good opinion of themselves, But I was telling them um, the reason my dad left the seminary was because I appeared to him in a dream. And I said, Dad, what are you thinking? You can have kids. Why do you want to be a priest? And so he said he didn't remember that happening quite that way. But I (laughs) had heard I had heard that you had a dream about your kids before they were born.
3: Wow,
2: wow. That, that Julie, that story is so big and so long I've written a whole book about it.
0: Is that right? Is that your next you book? I just yep. finished it. Yep. I've just
2: finished it. And it's really about the ways that, um, you know, we all return to each other. Love doesn't go anywhere. Right. And that, you know, uh, one of the things I love about the rosary, which we write about in our book, is here it is, this prayer that teaches us about birth, death, and rebirth. And it's always reminding us, we get to the end and we circle around again. And that's what we're doing with our souls, too. We're always circling around with the people we love. We're always being returned mm. to each other in love. Mm. And very much, um, you know, there's no, our lady once said, there's no one you've loved who's ever lost you. Mm. Yeah. And
0: some people refer to that as many past lives.
3: Yes. that's the way I'm talking about that's it. That's, that's what we believe in, and and uh, you know and what we've experienced I mean we have you know clear clear memories that we share with, uh, with one another very it overlaps I mean I've written ways. a whole yeah.
2: you know and I think one of the things that's powerful about it is when you can really feel what we call the long story of your soul mm-hmm. there's suddenly enough time to work with it suddenly there's enough time. And we don't have to feel, you know, some things don't make sense um, just in the short story of a single life. I I wrote a book with this incredible psychic, um, Susan Saxman. Uh, it was she's called The Reluctant Psychic, and she really was. She, she had to teach herself to tell the living and the dead apart as a small child. Mm. And really, you know, really hard. But she had remembered a past life as a little girl in london um during the blood during the blitz killed as a five-year-old child but she remembered her parents loving her and singing to her and playing with her and devoted to her and i said well it's just a tragic life and she said oh no that was a gift
3: because she hadn't developed any of her spooky powers yet
2: because she said, I'm always a psychic, and my parents are always scared out of their minds about me because yeah. I can see everything about them and I know all their <laughs> secrets. And her, her parents had been terrified.
3: Yeah, really frightened. But right? she
2: said, I remember these parents who had just loved me, and I kept them close to my heart in this life when I was hmm. lonely. Hmm. Mm.
0: Well, uh, I, learned, I learned how to be a medical intuitive and psychic and medium, and I teach people around the world wow. how to do this. You know, I'm a businesswoman and an inventor, and I tell people I'm a businesswoman who learned how to do woo woo, and I'm a buffet of psychicness. So, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> turn it. Turn it on and off at will, and, and everybody comes in with the ability. They we all that. come in with yeah. intuitive ability. It's just exactly. a matter of developing it and enhancing it. And that's what I, Susan always said. I do past life scans with people all the time. And it's fascinating because oftentimes we'll get information with where it was. We always get where it was, what the year was. I get their name. A lot of times we'll get information too that can be corroborated with online historical documents. And it happen to us yeah. so all fun. the time. Yeah. So fun. I love it. Yeah. Well, in synchronicity. We're
2: always always peasants. (laughs) I think we're always, I don't know that we, I think we occasionally have a cow, but I don't think we're very famous.
0: (laughs) I was in Columbus Columbus, uh, last month for when my best friend's dad died and we were at the luncheon afterwards and her, Dad's best friend, who was also his cousin, was a school teacher. This is hope for you guys. He was a school teacher who left teaching and became a billionaire. And so my niece said to my nephew, who's a high school teacher, she goes, Oh, could you do that? Michael, it was hysterical. So I'm telling you, it does happen. You just never know. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of synchronicities, I know you guys have had several synchronicities that have led to you being so involved with this work. And one in particular involves a Madonna. I think you call it the Lady of
2: Roca Madure. Am I saying that right? She so, is, she's an incredible lady. I wish I, um, she is a small, she's only, you know, less than three feet tall,
3: two made feet of tall. black
2: walnut wood. And she's, there's some theory that she might actually be a statue of Isis with her baby Horace. Refashioned as a statue of Mary with baby Jesus, as often happened. You know, the traditional medieval image of the way the Madonna holds Jesus is just copied from statues. And in fact, the story of Isis and her husband Osiris is this
3: is very, very much very
2: the, similar to, to the, the story
3: the, of of Mary and Jesus.
2: Mary yeah. and Jesus. Yeah. And so interesting. Yeah. and it's about it's it's very interesting. It's about two thousand years older. In Jesus's day, that story would have been as old as the story of Jesus is to us, Mm -hmm. and it's the story of a God who is killed and resurrected. Yeah. um, By his beloved. Yeah. And and she brings.
3: And it's a story that has you know symbolic ecological uh, significance as well, because it's the story that they reenacted every year as a way of helping the crops to grow and get all kinds of rituals and festivals. And a lot of those- Springtime. Rituals and for festivals- For Easter, like Easter. Ended, ended up getting uh, incorporated into Judaism and then into Christianity. And so uh, these patterns and these stories are, are are much, much older than we know.
2: And but one of the oldest stories uh, Clark tells in, in his book, Waking Up to the Dark, is about a man who becomes devoted to Isis to bring, and brings her roses. Yeah. Bring, bring her crown of roses and prayers. So again, we see this tradition, and we see it even in India, the word, you know, a lot of people wear malas on their wrists these days, but the word Japamala means muttering garland. Right. It's a muttering, it's prayers and flowers woven together for yeah. the goddess.
3: So it's universally You find it not just in Western culture, but all around the world this tradition of weaving chaplets or garlands for uh, for the goddess. But you mentioned Our Lady Arokodore, and uh, Perdita and I became really, really fascinated with black padanas uh, shortly after the apparitions began. And um, mostly because the figure that uh, was, was uh, speaking uh, to me at that time did not fit easily inside the uh, the mold of the uh, Catholic Virgin Mary. And so uh, there was this sense that she was bigger. She felt more powerful. She felt much, much older. Uh, she didn't have a great deal of interest in talking about priests or the church or doctrine or any of that. She seemed much more concerned with big ecological processes and the future of humanity and how we are going to survive in an age of climate change. So- and one of
2: the things we found, which was so interesting um, was that you know contemporary images of Mary have become very docile, but if you go back to the Middle Ages, the statues you see of the Madonna—you you, know—we went to the Louvre. You can see thousands of them. Yeah. Oh my goodness! They're
3: very powerful. They and, are. And they're not uniform at all. They're, they're each one is an individual, and they look you straight in the eye.
2: And frequently, they're bearing their breast to nurse not just jesus but everybody
3: <laughs> yeah
2: and they're very powerful i mean yeah. you you they're very loving they can be very funny
3: yeah they're very humorous i mean you know sometimes sly they're smiling wink and, you know laughing they give you a wink and a nod and
2: in some of them are you know heartbroken but they're but they're but very
3: powerful they're powerful and there's not you know there's not this sort of uh Demure uh, Virgin Mary in pastel robes with downcast eyes. to calls them Valium virgins, and that's <laughs> that, that's 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 the the modern Catholic Church's version of the Virgin Mary. She's you know she is a. She is uh, you a know, good
2: girl who gets with the program
3: and does she's what. Very, she and she's
0: very European looking. Yeah, I mean, I don't think right. the Virgin Mary was quite that fair, in my that's opinion. Right. You that's know, right. she grew up in the Middle East, so my uh, I always pictured her as having olive skin and dark hair and right. not not some a lot of these German.
3: A lot of these oldest Madonnas are black Madonnas who who honor that, that more Catholic, that older, more ancient They're frequently origin. made from
2: ebony or walnut wood, and they're black. And,
3: yeah.
2: and, you know, you see them all over Europe. In fact, all around the world, there's a wonderful book called The Cult of the Black Virgin. It was written by a man called Ian Begg, who we were lucky enough to befriend before he died, who documented their presence um, And they are famous for their miracles. What's interesting about them is these Madonnas are frequently at sites that also where they found Paleolithic, that's Stone Age, goddess figurines. Have you ever seen those figurines of the goddess? Frequently they have. So what you find there is, oh, people have been coming to this area of the world devoted to the goddess here for Thousands, tens, and tens thousands of thousands of years. Of years. Yeah. Lords, yeah. lords is that's a site of devotion that may go back three hundred thousand years.
3: You know the cave. In, you know Rocamadour is, is uh, located in south central uh, or southwestern France. Yes, and uh, it's a very remote, very rocky, rugged region, right? But there, this is the area of the world that has the oldest painted caves. And the, the, Our Lady of Rokmadur, her chapel is actually a cave that has had a chapel built kind of around it. But if you go inside, some of the, some of the walls are just obviously cave walls. And if you walk about uh, five minutes from that cave, there's another cave with paintings 20,000 years old of bison and mammoths. Right, wow. just just five minute walk away. So wow. people have been coming to to, and actually people came to this area of the world to weather a climate crisis, right? That's originally why the Homo sapiens came there.
0: Huh, interesting. So back to your Madonna that you found, Clark. I love that story. It's in the book. Can you give us a synopsis of that? <laughs> I think it's such a fun story.
3: Well, Perdita and I, when we first, you know, we we. We sold two books in one year in 1996, Jonah was born. And the deal was that we could have a second baby if we sold a second book. And it's pretty, I said, all right, but we, we we gotta have money. So we gotta sell another book. Sold two books in one year, Jonah was born. We signed on the house here in Woodstock, like literally the very day he was born. And then, we thought we're just gonna write two books a year forever. And that's how we'll, we'll you know, we'll support it. was ourselves.
2: the nineties, we were foolish. It, it was, it, you know, we ended up, we ended up <laughs> with not a very good plan, living in the country with two children, not sure how we were gonna make a living. And yeah. one night, you know, we were really, you know, I think we were waiting on a check for a book that might come in the next six weeks. And we had a hundred dollars left on our credit card. And I think I counted out quarters from an old jar and said, to Clark, like a character in a fairy tale, go buy us some milk and eggs, but you got to go to the town next door where it's cheaper. Yeah. So I send him out to go do this.
3: Which I did. It wasn't at night, it was the afternoon. And then I, I drove to the to the grocery store, got stuff. It was on my way back. And I passed this little antique shop that somebody was running out of the second floor of their house, not even the ground floor, it, but and there was this little dormer window, and there is this statue of the Virgin Mary. Don't touch her oh, no. face.
2: Uh, uh. <laughs> there she is.
3: Yeah. So there's this statue of the Virgin Mary that um that was just sitting there in the window. And I didn't know it was the Virgin Mary. I just saw I've got my hand. Out. Yeah. But yeah. I just I just saw this statue there and I got out and I went in and I uh uh went up, you know, and took a look at her and it was amazing. I'd never seen a statue like this before. It looked like a medieval statue of, of the Virgin Mary, like an original. So I asked the woman and she said, no, I think it's a, I think it's a, you know, some sort of a reproduction, you know, and I looked at it and I turned it upside down looked at the footing and I instantly knew that this was not a reproduction. This was an original. So I said, well, how much do you want? She said a hundred dollars. So I pulled out my credit card. <laughs> I gave her the credit card and I came home with this statue and I walked in and produced it. What's that? And I told her how much did it cost? I told her. And she said, I kid you not, I send you off with a cow and you come back with magic beans. <laughs> but like within an hour, she had positioned her in pride of place on our mantle, which became an altar. And uh, she had found that little statue she talked about of the Virgin Mary from her childhood and leaned it up against her. And, and she and the kids were offering wallflowers, just like the old stories by the end of the day. Yeah. And the
2: interesting thing you may notice, her face is very black, Julie. Right. Which wasn't originally that black. The day we finished writing The Way of the Rose, we had a novena candle, one of those tall candles burning right near her. And we always did, you know, we've been working on the book for years and we often would light a candle in the morning and then work on the book together. We finished the book and we looked at each other and said, it's done, we did it, (laughs) amazing. And at that moment we heard a and a cloud of black smoke blew up through the candle and turned her face jet black. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. What
0: do what do you think that means? You, well, did you did it! You did it! <laughs>
2: yes,
3: that's right. You wrote a book about the. You wrote a book about the it. original uh, lady.
2: And she, she, you know, there's a secret about her. We meet her twin. In France. And if you read The Way of the Royals, you'll find out we met one other statue that looked just like this.
3: Yeah. And it's hidden a,
2: in a church in France.
3: Yeah. a tiny little out of the way church with a long. Did you,
0: did you take that statue to the antique road
2: show or someplace?
0: Right. No. No,
2: it actually was sold to us by a woman who became a friend of ours. Yeah. And we feel kind of terrible that we
3: only yeah. paid $100 All for right. it.
0: But, but so you haven't been curious to find out.
3: You know, so we, you know, we have at this point uh, between the two of us, we're we we've become kind of minor experts in uh, medieval statuary of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> so probably, uh, you know, we we would have to go to the Met probably to find somebody who does more about it than we do at this point. So.
0: What do you think? Where? What's your guess of where?
3: What I think she's she's probably she's French originally. I think
2: she's French and came down through Canada. Came
3: down through Canada. She was probably. Uh, in a in a little little niche in a in a church somewhere in probably western France, maybe not far from roquemadour she made her way to Canada, probably uh, where at some point where you know she was in a church up there. We did have a her psychic friend said she had lived in Canada before she came here. So,
2: <laughs> you know, so many of the decommissioned churches, so many of the statues, the medals, you know, we Clark and I are great we go to junk shops and thrift shops and we find treasures all the time. Mm-hmm. No, I have on my rosary. I don't, I don't have a cross on the end of my rosary, but I have a medal that comes from France. And on one side is Mary Magdalene and on the other is St. Anthony. Mm-hmm. Just love it. It's, um. but there's a lot of, you know, the, a lot of the lore of, of devotion to the Virgin Mary devotion to the saints has been lost. Yeah. And with it, a lot of these items have just ended up, you know,
3: floating around. There's there's a Bavarian Black Madonna in Boston that almost nobody even knew about, but Perdita found out about it. I was on my way up there for a book tour some years ago, and I went and visited her, and she was in a decommissioned Anglican church, and they were about to, uh, you know, dismantle all this artwork inside of this church, and uh, I got on the phone and managed to get the dean of the cathedral on the phone, and I said, what are you going to do, sell this Black Madonna, this Bavarian Black Madonna? And he said, well, what should we do? I said, you well, you will probably be very unlucky if you don't honor her in some really significant way. So they built a special uh, uh, chapel for her in, in the redesigned cathedral in Boston. Oh, wow. Interesting. And,
0: Interesting. Yeah. By the way, I got that she dates back to 1437.
2: Fourteen thirty-seven. Oh, yep! Wow! Wow!
3: Yeah. That that that's would make okay, sense. Then.
2: Oh, I'm having chills right. now. Yeah, oh, full that, chills. That would make full sense. She's,
3: that's that's yeah. Fifteenth century is about is about the design of her face. They have very
0: so those, uh, those chills, Perdita, are validation. Yeah. Spirits yeah. telling you that that's true. The other thing I wanted you to know. Chills of truth. Is, we call them in our in our family. <laughs> what do you call them? Chills of truth. <laughs> Chills of truth. Some people call them angel bumps, you know. Yeah. Bumps. <laughs> but I know, you know, when you get that prickle feeling, you go like, oh, that's the confirmation. 1437. <laughs> 1437. The other thing is most people know that my main spirit guide is a dead Pope, Pope Clement the VI, mm-hmm. who oh. was in office during the Black Plague. And he showed up when I was with my mentor and teacher and I zap on people all over the world. She's the only one that zaps on me. So I'm laying in her office. I'm on a massage table face up and she's doing an energy healing on me. And my deceased family members' spirits are on either side of me when that happens. And one day this dead Pope shows up in his whole Pope outfit And I said, to him, well, who are you? And he said, I'm Clement. And I said, there was a Pope Clement. I'm a good Catholic girl. I never heard of a Pope Clement. And he laughed and he said, yeah, I was number six. And I said, okay, great. May I help you? And he said, (laughs) yeah, you're supposed to teach the world what happens when somebody dies. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not doing that. I'm a businesswoman. People are going to think I'm nuts. And he said, yeah, whatever. Just, you know, get on with it. Hurry up. So it took me several years to get enough golden ovary courage. You know, guys have brass balls, girls have golden ovaries, golden (laughs) ovary courage to release it. And then I wrote (laughs) angelic attendance, what really happens as we transition. But soon after Pope Clement appeared to me, well, well, the end of that story is I got in the car to go home and I Googled him and found out he was in office during the Black Plague. And I thought, oh, God, Ryan, you can't make this stuff up. And he's he prods me. He treats me like a Nike ad. He'll say, just do it. When I tell him why I can't do something, (laughs) he'll say, just do it. But shortly after he showed up, Mary Magdalene showed up and she's one of my main spirit guides as well. And she always has a couple of women with her. Mm-hmm. And and I asked her when she first showed up, I said, why are you with me? And she said, because the path you're going on, you have the potential to be ridiculed for your beliefs. And I know all about that. <laughs> I said, OK. And so, yeah, she she's around me a lot. Wow.
2: Our book concludes, you know, at the at the Church of the Ma- of the Magdalene in the Dordogne. And, you know, she's really uh well, you know, she's where it's all at. It's in in front of a statue of her, yeah.
0: right? Absolutely. So, well, great stories.
2: Fourteen
0: thirty-seven is what I'm getting. From. It was Right after Joan of Arc was
2: killed. Yeah.
0: Yeah. From um, was- right. And and what did, didn't you say that Joan? Well, in the book, you talk about Joan of Arc. So tell us tell us about how the mysterious lady showed up. You guys see apparitions of her. I want to know. Uh-huh. Is, does, she she does. Show, does she show up on a schedule? I mean, is she like, okay, Monday night at eight o'clock, I'm going to show up. So meet me at the,
2: you know, at the, at the
0: <laughs> no, no, she, she, does,
3: she does not announce her, uh, she does not announce her apparitions ahead of time.
2: <laughs> Although she does give at this point, she has, she has now for the past nine years been giving public messages, which are all up on our website. And she does give a public message on the 16th of every month. Right. Um, She just gave a message. They're up on our website. We have a Facebook group where they're also shared. Um, And we also have a meeting whenever the message comes through to pray the rosary together and read the message. The interesting thing about the 16th of the month, this just
0: came in, is, uh, you know, six and one is seven. So in numerology,
2: seven is spiritual perfection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we wondered what the 16th was. What was June 16th was when she first appeared. And we, You know, there have been certain synchronicities we've discovered with that date, but, you know, there was no Saints Day, there was no anything. But June 16th, 1972 was, was, the, 72, was yeah. the date of something called the Stockholm Conference. And it was the day when it was first declared by a meeting. Clark can tell you about the Stockholm well,
3: Conference better the, than I can. The, the Stockholm Commission was uh, convened by the United Nations to discuss the looming uh, crises, environmental crises of, of, of the 20th and 21st centuries, and uh, it was de- declared at the very end of that international conference that the Earth had rights. So it was the first international legal declaration of government, governing body of nations to the effect that the Earth had rights. So that happened on June 16th. Yeah,
0: 1972. There are there are we have a priest who's an assistant. And I'll send you a, um, a video of him. He I had him on a friend of mine's podcast. Brilliant guy, PhD in counseling from UGA. And he's a priest. He's an Indian fellow. And he did a lecture at our church on numbers in the Bible and how numerology is so involved and how most people were illiterate, obviously. And so how they kept the continuity of the stories was... The the Hebrew people knew what certain numbers meant, and seven is the number of spiritual perfection. So that came in really clearly to me when you guys said she always gives a message on the sixteenth of the month.
3: Well, that's the that's the uh, anniversary of of you know the monthly anniversary of the initial apparition, which was on uh, June sixteenth, two thousand
0: and eleven. Of your initial apparition too. Okay, so tell everybody, tell us about what happened.
3: Well, um, I've been getting up in the middle of the night to walk since I was a little boy. I wake up, you know, after three or four hours, and I go out for a walk for an hour or so.
2: And I'm going to tell you something. He is not afraid of the dark. Like, I mean, he is so comfortable out in the woods. I cannot tell you. He would hike up mountains off trail in the middle of the night. He I mean, Clark is so comfortable. He would get lost in New York City, but out in the woods,
0: he never gets
3: lost.
2: So do you go out when the weather's
0: really snarky too? Uh,
3: you know, I'm 63 now and I don't I don't walk, you know, I don't used walk. To. Yeah, I don't walk all winter long like at night, like I used he to. He used to go
2: out and sleep under a blanket and the snow would cover him over. Yeah.
3: So I don't do that anymore, but but you know, if, if the weather is good and it's not terribly cold, I'll get up and I'll start walking. Nowadays I you know I do it and I pray the rosary. But at that time, um, I was not yet praying the rosary. I would go out and I would pray, talk to God. I would, you know, I had various different kinds of mantric or meditative style practices that, you know, I had done for years. Uh, during that that time, and I even had a name for it. I call it the Hour of God because I'd done some research for a book, Waking Up to the Dark, and uh, which which uh, uh, revealed that all of the world's major religions uh, had two things in common. One was that they involved uh, a period of time in the middle of the night, which their uh, monastics would wake for in order to chant or pray in Buddhism and Hinduism and uh, Islam and Christianity and Judaism, right? It's pretty much universal. And I also discovered that uh, there was some research that had been done at the National Institutes of Health in the 90s that discovered that that if you took uh, modern human beings off of electricity Uh, they would revert to this older pattern of segmented sleep, sleeping for four hours, waking for two, and uh, going to sleep for another four. And in in that two-hour gap period, they would neither be fully asleep nor, nor fully awake, but they would feel tremendous peace and clarity, right? And the researcher, Thomas Ware, who studied this, he discovered that the only really analogous mental state to what ordinary people were experiencing after three weeks of being on the schedule was like advanced uh tibetan lamas like people who'd been meditating in caves like all of their life so anyway i had this so i so i started calling it the hour of god so i got up that night to go for my regular walk there'd been an eclipse uh earlier that night the moon was full was a special night perfect weather i put my hand on the doorknob to go out and I felt uh, a hand on my right shoulder and a man's voice said, don't go out tonight, remain inside and be very still. Now, years later, you know, I, st- I got very curious. I read about apparitions. There's often a figure, often male, an angel or somebody or child sometimes that comes, uh, you know, in, in, uh, in advance, sort of like an advanced scout or something, you know, for the lady. So I really wanted to go out, but I thought, okay, I'll do this. So I got on the couch, and you know, I've been at Zen monk, you know, being quiet and still is kind of a professional, you know, skill I've developed. So it was easy enough to do. So I just made my mind very quiet, and I closed my eyes and I sat there. And after about 40 minutes, I um, I felt a presence in the room, unmistakable presence, very close to me. So I opened my eyes. And I saw two reed stalks blowing as if moved by an invisible breeze. it's as if the whole house had disappeared. It was just darkness. And it's like I was in the middle of a marsh, perhaps. And uh, then they vanished. And in their place was the round uh, face of a teenage girl, about 17 years old. And she had uh, 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 pale skin, freckles around her nose, uh, hazel eyes and auburn hair cropped short. And she had an X of black electrical tape over her mouth. And I'd never seen eyes more urgent than her eyes were. They were just, they were just bursting with urgency. And I looked into her eyes, and I've been trained as a Zen Buddhist monk to, to, to uh call experiences like this makyo, which means illusion. So the received wisdom in Zen is that if If you experience something like this, it's just an illusion. Stare it down and it'll go away. (laughs) So I stared into this girl's eyes for probably about four or five seconds, right? And uh, lately I've started saying it was like the entire, uh, you know, seven episodes of The Queen's Gambit about (laughs) the young chess female chess master, right? It was like a chess game that went on on and on and on and on about five seconds and she won. And there was no contest. And I thought in that moment, my gosh, you know, the Zen masters were really wrong. Like (laughs) you can't stare this lady down and you're not supposed to. And furthermore, this is not illusion, this is real. if, If there's an illusion here, it's me, not her. So, you know, the only thing I really knew at that point was that the tape had to come off. And so I leaned over and I, I, I took the, the corner of the tape. I was afraid to touch her, honestly. Uh, and uh, I pulled the tape. I could feel it pulling against her skin. And I pulled it off. And when I did, she gasped. And it was this, this huge sound that didn't fit the size of her body. It was like a, a crypt being unsealed after thousands of years. And, and then I started to, to speak, to ask the obvious question. And, but she shook her head very slowly like that nothing could be said so i just stared at her continued to stare at her for for a few minutes and then the zen monk part of my brain won over and i closed my eyes and went back to meditating
2: and the first miracle i experienced and i have to say i was very agnostic about this whole experience in the beginning i I had been working on this book with a psychic and I thought, well, you're seeing something. I don't know what you're seeing, but I said, you know, you're seeing a dead grandmother. And he said, no, <laughs> <laughs> you know, are you seeing, you know, maybe it's Joan of Arc. She sounds, she looks like she's doing Maybe, said Clark. And I knew he was transformed, but I didn't know how to take it in and I didn't know what to say. And then two months later, the, this is a miracle. Clark was the most spiritually restless person I've ever met. Always looking for something, always looking. And I have to say, I've been praying the rosary for 15 years. And I couldn't find any other ex-Catholic, ex-Buddhist, nothings to pray the rosary. And I thought, I'm just going to be praying the rosary by myself forever. But I love it (laughs) so much. Who cares? And we were up on Cape Cod in a house by the marsh. And Clark one morning woke me and said, the lady said yeah, last night.
3: Ten, it, was, it was 10 weeks later. Uh, the
2: feast of the coronation, only we didn't know we it. We
3: didn't know it. It was August 22nd. And, uh, you know, I, I had, uh, we, we'd just gotten to the uh, rental house in Wellfleet, Massachusetts on Cape Cod, and we'd fallen asleep. And uh, she woke me after about an hour and a half, two hours of sleep. And she woke me with the words, if you rise, say the rosary tonight, a column of saints will support your prayer. And it took me a second to, you know, come out of sleep and to realize that she was there in the room. And then I said, but I don't have a rosary. And she said, yes, you do. And I remembered that I had, for no reason I could have explained, bought a rosary at a flea market that very morning and just stuffed it in my pocket. So I pulled out the rosary and I did, as she said, and I went out and sat, you know, overlooking the marshes and prayed the rosary and then went back to bed. And uh, I hadn't said the rosary in years. I would know, learned it years earlier on a whim, you know, Uh
2: But But it was one of, you know, I think that was the moment. As Clark said, you know, he wasn't Catholic, but he
3: (laughs) Yeah, was just like up until that point, I was agnostic about who she was. Like, I I think part of me was saying, oh, please don't let her be the Virgin Mary. Please don't let her be the Virgin Mary. (laughs) I didn't want to. I didn't want to have to become Catholic. Right. I thought that would mean I had to become Catholic. So uh, so. But that morning I woke up and I thought, well. I'm not Catholic, but I'm also not stupid because there's only one figure who invites you to pray the rosary and makes promises based on whether you accept the invitation or not. So then I knew.
2: And that one of the it. things that happened was that column of saints started to materialize. Clark had had a group that had been, uh, it was called Excess Anonymous, exploring, you know, responses, spiritual responses to climate change. Yeah. Suddenly, this group of people
3: all start praying the rosary.
2: And they're not, two of them are Catholic. The others are Protestant, they're Buddhist, Hindus, Jewish, Buddhists, Jewish, Jewish nothings. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's praying the rosary. Clark goes and says, I'm going to start a rosary group online. The next thing you know, we have people all over the world showing up and saying, oh, I've always wanted to pray the rosary. I didn't think I could pray the rosary if I wasn't Catholic. So, you know, one of the things we discovered that very day was we found a book, coincidentally, <laughs> at a used morning, bookstore. That very next month, yeah called Queen of the Cosmos, about the apparitions at Medjugorje. And we opened it up, and the first thing she said is, you know, is it a universal- One,
3: one of the apparitionists, Marija said, uh, was asked by uh, by the interviewer, uh, is the Catholic, I mean, is the rosary a universal recommendation from Our Lady, even though it's so specifically Catholic? And Our Lady of Medjugorje said, yes, I am inviting everyone on Earth to pray the Rosary, regardless of their religion or their belief.
2: Except, you know, except they are Catholic, and so it's been harder to get to non-Catholics with the Rosary. And I think that's sort of our job. Our job is to bring the Rosary to everybody and to show them that um, you know you can pray the Rosary, and it has rich, rich depths, and it.
3: Taps into our ancestral history and our ancestral wisdom.
2: And one of the first things Our Lady said about the rosary, her teachings was, she said, "My body, my body." She said, "The rosary is is my body, body,
3: and my body is the body of the earth. Your body is one with that body. What cause could you have for fear?" This was her first teaching on the rosary.
2: And we, how how applicable is that today? right now with what we're doing and we want something to hold on to and 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 it's most basic you know buddhism we both come through buddhism keeps telling you to let go let go let go but you don't let go of your children Mm. you don't let go of those you love and no child lets go of its mother if if it's going to survive the first thing we do as babies is we hold on
3: yeah
2: hold on and what our lady wants us to hold on to is not addictions not consumption she wants us to hold on to her yeah and when we hold on to the rosary it's like taking her hand you know some people have wondered why are people so devoted to roses roses are 35 million years old why is it that we're so in love with them and if you the original roses all had five petals before they started, you know, breeding them and making them different. They're all wild roses at the beach, five roses, Rosa Gallica, five petals. And it's like the five fingers of the human hand. Yeah, It's like her hand reaching out to us. Mm -hmm. And with the rosary, it's like a five petaled rose where she reaches out to us and we reach out to her. And, you know, We've seen right now during these times that it's nice to know we've got a mother in charge of the world and yeah. in charge
3: of us. Yeah, there's a mother in, <laughs> you know.
2: So, have you had
0: any any contact with the Vatican wanting to interview you about your apparitions? I mean, I they no, no. They but know.
3: Our Lady said something very, very interesting early on. I, I was uh, once I figured out uh, who she was, and uh, you know, and she confirmed that. Uh, I was concerned that I was going to have to go like to the local bishop and report the apparition. And she said, uh, no, she said the editors are the bishops now.
2: Okay. so, Julie, he does something that's even scarier than going to the Vatican. So we're writers. We make our living writing. Right. Clark has written a book. His first book about the apparition was called Waking Up to the Dark. This book, which had started about darkness, became about the apparition. Yeah, a lot of a lot
3: of uh, memoir, a lot of sleep science, a lot of paleoanthropology, a lot of climate science. In the he first sends, parts of the book. He sends the last part's all about the apparition. He
2: sends it to his agent. His agent says, "Clark, I cannot
3: publish this book. I cannot sell it.
2: I cannot sell it."
3: She says, "I I don't I can't. There's, there's no way so, I can be able to sell this."
2: Our lady tells Clark there is an editor for this book.
3: I've chosen. Already. I've chosen
2: already. But she doesn't tell him who. So Clark writes a letter to the 20 top spiritual book editors in New York City. And he's respected. He's been a senior editor at a magazine and, 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 and published
3: books. Half of them I already know, like I have professional relationships. And so relationships he writes them a letter. Back 10 or 15 20 years. Our lady has
2: chosen one of you to publish this book about the apparition. You know who you are.
3: It, yeah, she said the person she send. says the person Uh, who I've chosen will know who they are. And I hit send and I get back very, very bemused. Uh, Like one, one editor I hadn't seen in years, you know, wrote me back and said, Clark, are you off your meds? I didn't even know you were on meds. (laughs) Like, you know, another woman who, whose name I won't mention, but one of the very, you know, most powerful women in in all of publishing, uh, she wrote back and said, there's no way that I can publish this book. She said, but having read it, I don't know how I'm going to go on with my life. What should I do? And I said, well, if it affected you that profoundly, you should publish the book. (laughs) But she wouldn't. Then I was praying the rosary one night, and uh, I had a vision of a woman with a very, uh, uh, very uh, lovely face, very intelligent, uh, very warm hearted face and long sort of shoulder length, uh, curly, dark hair. And um, our lady said, be prepared to meet with this woman in two weeks time. And then I got curious because Perdita had met Cindy Spiegel on another, you know.
2: He described it to me and I, and another book project I'd met this woman. And I said, that sounds like Cindy Spiegel is this big deal editor.
3: So yeah, she was one of the most famous editors in the business. And so, uh, And so I, you know, Googled her and saw her face. I said, that's her. And so, you know, she was one of the, she was one of the 20 people that I I had sent the book to. Sure enough, like a few days later, Cindy calls and says, We need to have lunch. And the first thing she says when we sit down to lunch is, she says, I'm the one.
2: Wow. And she pub- and she published the way you know we so she she published published Into the dark and she published the way of the Rose
1: yeah.
2: and um, and she was a remark you know she she is an incredible collaborator on this project uh, yeah, and yeah. and one day she was working with us on way of the Rose and you know she said words that are both dear to writers' hearts and terrifying, which is take as much time as you need. I just want you to get it right, <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> you're terrified <laughs> you know? but
3: but Cindy's a believer. She has, she has, uh, you know. So she, she has her own experiences. She,
2: so. you know, um, but she's Jewish. And but she was having a psychic visit her one morning, and she had made a schedule of the psychic. She's a very powerful woman in New York, and he's coming to see her before she goes to work.
3: And she's very busy,
2: and she's very busy. This psychic appointment, and he's late, and he arrives about twenty minutes late. And she said, "You're late." He said. I'm so sorry. I was on the way here and the Virgin Mary told me I had to go and pray the rosary before I met with you. And, and, and he then said, she, and, and then he said, and I walk in the room and she's here. And Cindy goes, Oh yeah, I know, of course, but let's get to my appointment. <laughs> 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 so she's, she was uh, very, um, yeah, that was, that was, that was the that validation we needed to have, you know, a powerful uh, Jewish woman editor in New York said, and for me, people have often, I do not see Our Lady, and I do not hear her. But Clark began telling me what she was saying, and I've worked with him as his editor for 30 years. I know how he talks. <laughs> I know how he thinks. He's not up to this. <laughs> You're not that creative, Clark.
3: I, is just
1: not, he, I adore him, my, Julie, my, my,
3: my daughter, my, my daughter is, makes it, puts it even clearer. She says... Yeah, there's no way that dad is an (laughs) (laughs) eco-feminist.
0: I find it fascinating, too, that, that she shows up to you as a redhead with freckles, because I always teach and talk about that we're going to use our own frame of reference to see things. And for me, I'm going to picture the Virgin Mary like she looks in the statues and all the Catholic churches that I've been in in my lifetime. But to somebody who didn't have that background, I always say angels look to me like a Catholic schoolgirl is going to see angels, you know, big wings, white gown, all of that. But certainly somebody that grew up perhaps in Peru and in an indigenous tribe, they may see an angel as a blob of purple energy or something.
2: Well, what we say at the Way of the Rose is we invite people to come and share their devotion to the lady by any name you like to call her. And she has many names. And she also, she's matter. Mater means mother and matter is mother. Mm -hmm. She's the mountains. She's the trees. She's the ocean. She's the moon. She's the earth and she appears in all different kinds of guises. Some people see her in the trees, some people see her in the rivers, some people see her here, some people see her there. I mean, one of the things that's so striking to me if you look at Paleolithic figurines is how different they are. Mm. Some of them are skinny, some of them are, you know, Venus of Willendorf, some of them are old, some of them are young, but they all fit in your hand. They're all meant to Mm. be held. Mm. And Our Lady appears to all of us all the time in so many, many different ways. Like you said, she appears in the ways that are familiar and comforting to us. Mm-hmm. How we, you know, there was a woman who was praying in, in the middle of great struggles in our group, and she has been praying for some sign from Our Lady, and she saw her in a blue robe at the foot of her bed, and that was all she needed,
3: yeah. you know? Yeah.
2: That was that was what she needed to be comforted. Our lady will appear as we need to see.
0: I saw her appear uh, when a friend of mine who's she's a serious Catholic. She's 88. So, yeah, she's a serious Catholic and she had surgery and she was having a reaction to the morphine. That they were Oh, us. that's a
2: terrible thing.
0: And so she was in post-op and then they took her to the room and she was having a reaction. And so her daughter-in-law, who's a dear friend of mine is texting me. She's going, she's in trouble. You know, what are you seeing? And I saw the Virgin Mary go above her in a healing. And I saw this circle of energy that was sparkly energy in a spiral that spun around her. And I got And they couldn't figure out what was going on. And I got, she's allergic to the morphine, get her on Dilaudid or something else. And so they did and she was fine. But that's the only time that I've seen her involved in a healing that I've done. But she appeared in the blue robe, you know, with the head thing and all of that, because that's how I would recognize who she is. So
2: how
0: how does she communicate to you? Clark, in dreams, are you awake when you're meditating? How?
3: Well, how that no, she 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 rarely appears. She she does still appear, and uh, but it's unpredictable. And she usually has, you know, I think some reason, you know, for specific reason for wanting to appear rather than just speaking to me. But uh, she speaks to me at at you know various different times. But every every third day. Uh, she, she, you know, touches, when, we're the when we're praying the rosary together, she touches base and and she speaks. I hear her and I repeat what she says, and Perdita writes it down.
0: So you hear her as just thoughts in your head. She's communicating well, I mean, you're it's sure it's, it's a
3: little, it's a little, it's a little hard to um, to describe because I'm not really uh, there for very much of it. I'm there only at the very beginning, and I hear her speak the first few words and then uh, after that it's it's more like uh you know i am being spoken like i speak her words as she's saying them and so i don't even really at that point you know i don't even so much hear them i hear them come as they as, as the words come out and uh, i oftentimes have very little memory afterwards which but it's interesting because I, I will have absolutely no memory of, of anything she said and then Perdita will write it up and then she'll show it to me. And then once I look at the transcript, it comes back word for word. And if one word is wrong or has been mistranscribed, I'll, I'll see it. So it's in there, yeah. but, but I don't have any conscious access to it usually.
0: It's because you're going in and out of different realities. I'm the yeah. same way when I'm Working with somebody or doing a healing on somebody, I'm not going to necessarily remember what went on, but I can go back and I can pick it back up.
3: Sometimes if if she wants if she wants me to know if if like if she has a message specifically for me, which is infrequent, but sometimes she does, then I will remember that. Mm -hmm. Like she will she will you know uh, she will make it so that I can remember. But I I, very early on, you know, I thought you know. she appeared when I was, you know, like, like 50, you know, 53, 54 years old, you know, and read too many books and (laughs) been too many times around the block. And, you know, part of me just felt like, you know, how how am I like the equal of these, you know, Portuguese peasant girls and things, right? Like, you know, complicated, you know, sort of hyper-intellectual person. It's just not, doesn't seem like the kind of person who who would be uh, chosen for this kind of work. And she said, have you ever seen those bamboo flutes, uh-huh. you know, that, that they play in Asia? And I said, yeah. And she says, you know how, you know, you, you get one that has a crack in it and it's hard to play. She says, I'm really good at playing cracked flutes. And if I hold them just right, I can get a sound out of them. She said. <laughs> And she said, you're that cracked flute. I, get ex- I can get exactly the sound I wor- need out of it, but I have to turn it and twist it a little <laughs> bit to make that happen. And um, so I thought, better a cracked flute than no flute. Right, so so right. I'll take it. I'll take it.
0: <laughs> well, I could talk to you guys all night, but we're running running short on time here. So tell everybody how they can find you, how they can. we just
2: got a couple minutes left. Absolutely. How they can.
0: We have a group and all of
2: that. Well, we have a website, wayoftherose.org. And on that website, there's information about rosary meetings. If you want to play the rosary with friends, novenas that we do, there's a lot of information about the rosary. Um, There are a lot of incredible artists making rosaries uh, that we list on in the group as well. We have a very lively Facebook group. A lot of people we know are in on Facebook just for this group. And honestly, it's very unlike the rest of Facebook. It is the kindest, most nourishing. Everyone there is devoted to the lady. We screen people very. The only screening we do is to make sure people are really devoted to right, her. Right,
3: right. You just and, ask, ask questions if they have to answer. Before and, they
2: but it's, it's really filled with rich nourishment. We offer a lot of support for people praying and um. It's the way of the rose. We invite you to join us and come pray the rosary mm-hmm. with us. It, that's, um,
3: and all of our ladies' messages are up on the website at wayoftherose.org. So, yeah, people are do curious. you have
2: a do you send them out like a weekly newsletter? We don't have thing? a newsletter. It, the, our New Year's goal is to begin to do a newsletter. That's right. <laughs> the book is out there. Um, we don't have a newsletter, but we do have they are the website is updated with the message as soon as okay. it goes.
3: Okay. And the message is pinned to the top of our of our Way of the Rose group page on Facebook, so it's the first thing that people see when they go to the to the group page.
2: And it's a, and it's a very lively group. You know, Clark took the tape off our lady's mouth, and at its most fundamental, the rosary is a story that invites us to tell our story. Yeah. And just like in the Middle Ages, we used to see people in this group finding their voices, yeah. telling their stories. We have musicians, artists poets, storytellers of all kinds. And so it's a very rich, very fertile community of people celebrating her
3: and, and sharing their love. And most, most important, you know, because, you know, the lady, as she said once, I don't do this for your spiritual amusement. She says, we're here to do work. And yeah. the work is the work of miracles. And so we have people uh, routinely uh, spreading word every day every day on the site about miracles that have occurred in the group
2: and finally just on Christmas Eve if I could ask everyone for that young girl with Joseph in a stable if we can all send ourselves back to be with her in love as she births life into the world tonight and births life within us in gratitude and companionship with her
0: absolutely I can't think of a better couple with whom to spend christmas eve so thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this for heaven's sakes if we didn't have the virgin mary we wouldn't have a christmas eve or a jesus (laughs) or the rest of it right she's (laughs) you know she's the source so much love to the two of you thank you so much thank you Merry merry christmas
1: thank you julie it's been wonderful merry christmas Bye bye. thanks for joining us